We must speak the truth about terrorists. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No delusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkuschel. All right, as we are sitting here at the end of October, it is Sunday evening, October 31st. Um, hope everybody is having a great um, you know, Halloween or whatever, uh, if you don't celebrate or whatever, just having a great day out there. And uh, we're ending the month off and getting ready to go into the uh, month of November here. And um, we want to circle back, Jeremy, to uh, the we going back to our um, talking about like the 20th anniversary of September 11th, some of our feelings and a couple of programs that we did. Um, of course, we covered uh, some of the media climate surrounding Spike Lee, this um, this documentary on on about Feinberg. And we also gave some general thoughts about um, where we feel the um, what's important in terms of like uh, of investigations in terms of getting as much the truth as possible about um where the evidence i think leads as far as the uh, major aspects of like uh complicity and culpability and truth regarding uh, the events of september 11th as well as the aftermath um and this time we're going to do a follow-up on this strain of thinking by focusing on um a particular um i guess a particular network a couple of 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 individuals and uh, and thinkers, particularly around something that we've been identifying recently, and um, we're going to get into a debate. We're going to be focusing on a person by the name of uh, Lot in this in this particular um, installment of the networks around uh, September 11th and analysis of the war on terror, geopolitical analysis and uh, aspects of that on um, Scott Horton, who is a pretty, uh, I would say, prominent uh, thinker, intellectual uh, activist within uh, what's known the libertarian movement. And uh, Jeremy, do you want to talk uh, a little more about what we're going to be getting into here? And then, of course, we can bring in um, other things if we're, if you're whatever, like if there's any other aspects that you want to bring in other than Scott Horton. But um, we'll talk a little bit about what we're going to be um, discussing here with regards to Scott Horton and a debate he had uh, and an interview we listened to with him and and why this figures into our long-term, what we've been focusing on mainly for so much of the last five years of our program in terms of, um, of September 11th and um, networks and narratives going out and, um, kind of doing our own counterintelligence in terms of picking up narratives and people and what are being put out there and where it's positive and where it's problematic and how this will figure into that. Yes. Okay. And one thing here is that it's very, if we, okay, we've, we've, we've put forth these uh, conceptual frameworks for understanding deep events that are maybe not a singular action, such as September 11th, 9-11. And or then what we have picked up on as eleven nine, which is also ongoing in many ways as actually part of a hybrid warfare, a political warfare operation that sure reached its uh, apparent, at least for now, zenith somewhere between the poles of eleven nine of 2016 when Trump was announced the president 
still have not really gotten to the bottom of uh, who did what in terms of the what I would term the military aspect of 11-9, i.e. election fraud, election rigging, that level of, uh, of surety in relationship to an operation beyond just the then intelligence part of it uh, and then the counterintelligence part of it. So somewhere suspended, you know, between 11-9 of 2016 and then 1-6 of uh, 2021, and now all of the wake of, of, of all of that is still in play. And so this three-part conceptual framework of a military part of an operation, an intelligence part of an operation, and then a counterintelligence part of an operation is, I believe, crucial to understanding the, the way that these events that we might term using things like 9-11 or 11-9 actually fit into much larger uh, historical frameworks and geostrategic interests. And so I would say that one of the most, I would say the most difficult category of those three is the counterintelligence aspect. (laughs) Because it, there's so many layers uh, to it. And by counterintelligence, I'll just re, uh, quickly reemphasize what, what, what I mean when I talk about a military component, an intelligence component, and a counterintelligence component uh, as a tripartite structure of, a, of an event. Military component means how do you guarantee kinetic effects? Such as if, you're, if, if, if it's something around an assassination, how does the actual murder take place? The bullet in the brain of Kennedy or something like that. But then also, how do you get uh, flying objects going boom into, into buildings and then buildings going boom? You know, those kinds of kinetic effects, the guarantee of kinetic outcomes. That, and so in, in terms of an, an, um, an 11-9 operation, that would, because it's a very... Mm, hybrid warfare scenario where it doesn't look like bombs being dropped, but what the ultimate military outcome is this guy, this asset of these interests being installed into this building, right? And so in order to do that, there, the, some of the kinetic effects you might look at would be something like guaranteeing uh, that machines that count the votes for him are there. It's, it's sure that they're going to uh, get the right number, let's say. Right. And so then he will then be uh, installed into that building. So that'd be the, the military effects. Then the intelligence effects uh, or the intelligence aspect of this is the, b- because most of these are false flag operations in structure the intelligence side of it is how the production of the story that is then to be believed even and or the people that are to be blamed for the actual military operation and who actually caused the effects rather than who is then said to be blamed. And this is most obvious in relationship to things like uh, 9-11 uh, where the it's all about the hijackers of the Al-Qaeda cells, then the hijacking itself, and then 
the running of hijacked planes into buildings and then this causing the entirety of the physical effects and and death and destruction ultimately and and then that that always then fits into the the purpose the reason almost always there's the reason why why a, a certain group of people is chosen inside of the intelligence uh, framework to be blamed for the actual military operation, right? And so this is a little bit more complex in terms of eleven nine than it is for something like nine eleven or even something like the assassinations. Like what? Why was Oswald the one to be uh, blamed for the Kennedy operation? There, it's very possible there was even more reason for that than we know. Um, but at the very least, it's a, it's, it's a crucial through line to develop the intelligence, uh, framework for people to then to be told what to believe about who did it. So 11-9, the Trump mega, it's the, the, the through line actually is that this is actually the bubbling up of American populism. This is right-wing populism and the American people are fed up on the right and they don't trust the swamp and they voted in massive numbers to put this guy uh, in. And there's part of that that's true, right? So that's, that's, the, that's the important thing and that's why where we get into these conundrums where people will totally reject people who sort of understand the basic the basic uh, reality of the military operation and that it is a false flag operation at some level will then sometimes totally reject the intelligence, the legend part of it to basically say that's all a hoax or it's a total fraud in that way. Whereas no, it's an intelligence operation. So it exists. Is it, is it synthetic? Yes. But it, does it, does it, is it based on real people very often? And, uh, and so, and so it gets more complicated in something like 11, nine, where it's a actual hybrid warfare operation, because you can actually see where a part of the intelligence uh, through line of 11, nine was this idea that, that it was all based on information warfare, let's say that it was all based on, uh, on Cambridge Analytica, for example, and convincing people to vote or not vote. And sure, that was a big, big piece. And that then allows the alleged 11-9 debunkers to basically then try to limit that hangout to basically there was 100,000. The, the Russian government bought some guys, uh, a hot dog uh, vendor guy uh, bought $100,000 of Facebook ads and, you, yeah. you know, that kind of uh, scenario. Right, the Eric Prince of Russia is just a hot dog vendor who once catered to Vladimir Putin. I don't know, maybe Eric Prince isn't even an entirely fair comparison, but I mean, in terms of like, uh, you know, sponsoring um, or you know the the organ the Wagner organization and its global activities, but it's like it's just that that's that's able to by simply saying that like by making it about troll factories or troll farms or whatever, it's like, you can say, well, and this is what, and we talked about this before. This is how like, Oh, they're blaming Russian trolls for people, uh, for, for people questioning or for, uh, 
you know, a few people questioning race narratives about race and gender in our society. Oh, they're blaming Russian trolls for Black Lives Matter movement or whatever. And I mean, it's like it's it's simplistic, but also in a way it's kind of designed because like, you know, the the legacy media that's very much complicit, like in what we're talking about, like the New York Times can run a story about troll factories. And that's all the proof that the bunkers need. It's true. And so this is, I think, uh, one of the lessons, even in looking back towards 9-11, which is what we're honing in on and we're continuing to focus on, is what we can learn about the both the responses and the political, the political environment in certain alternative political spheres. And what we're going to focus on for the next hour, I would say, would be this lib, very lib, this neo libertarian sphere, or this up, this uprising in the libertarian sphere based around the Mises Caucus and people like Scott Horton as the seen as the leading anti-war and 9-11 truth intellectuals, really, even though he separates himself out and is always apologizing to the truthers is the way he often talks about it. Even when he went on uh, uh, Media Roots with Abby and Robbie Martin, he he had a respectful disagreement or something like that with, uh, with the, the truther uh, uh mind state or the truther claims in relationship to Robbie, especially. And, and so this is what we're really beginning to hone in on, uh, in terms of the, the, both the possibilities here and the positive values that are brought to the table by this, uh, political sphere, what it means about their rising, uh, in terms of at the very least inside of the libertarian party, but beyond that, but also the dangers and how it very much r- directly relates to the uh, the analytical uh, trap and and or downfall that we saw so many, especially in terms of like what we saw from nine eleven truthers, nine people who could be called nine eleven truthers during the eleven nine uh, years in terms of under Trump, how few. Basically, almost if any, really, in terms of actually really got it together to forensically break down eleven nine in a similar way that nine eleven was was broken down, and so that then leads me to that this what I started out by saying that this third part, the counterintelligence part, is I think the most complex. It 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 because the one thing about it is that it's also the one that's continuing ongoing it's kinetic in its in its cover-up right and so the the counterintelligence is ultimately then how do you in a very simplistic logic it's the enforcer of the narrative of the intelligence legend over the physical uh and political forensics that would lead you to the actual military operation and who did it and and why. And so that's the way that I see the counterintelligence piece of this. And so if you look at that kind of thing over a long term, you begin to really get into really complex and and, uh, historically baroque channels of understanding that you then have to deal with, where you begin to 
even un- you have to understand such things as what has become maybe the Mises caucus inside of the libertarian party, inside of the libertarian movement as potentially, you know, a, a channel of a long-term counterintelligence thread of some sort. And, you know, simplistically, if we were doing the sort of simplistic conspiracy theorist thing, we would just go and say, oh, Mises, uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises comes to the United States under a Rockefeller Foundation grant. And in, in, in you'd be sort of done with the, the whole uh, uh, analysis. But I think it's more a little bit more complicated than that, although that factor needs to be brought into the mix, right? And when you then begin to factor into how these kinds of narratives, political narratives, begin to work in our contemporary area, meaning 21st century, and then you throw in a key figure like Ron Paul into the mix, and then this, uh, this dialectic that we see more and more between the libertarians and then what maybe the neo-reactionaries, the neo uh, the neo-confederates maybe in terms of certain aspects of what the what is represented by the CNP sphere and then how that that entire then that right alternative dialectic is is managed especially in relationship to maintaining these really really big important falsehoods and deceptions and I'll just give one uh, overarching example in terms of how this actually plays out before maybe we, uh, I'll pass it back to you, Greg, and we can begin to get into the specifics of some of these conversations that we're actually referring to, such as Scott Horton's debate with the, the arch neocon Bill Crystal that took place over the, in just a few weeks ago. Then some of the conversations that have been taking place surrounding the 20th anniversary of September 11th, including the affirmation, aforementioned one about with Scott Horton on Media Roots, specifically about Afghanistan and 9-11, but then also debriefing conversations between people like Scott Horton and Dave Smith, uh, also in part of this uh, Mises caucus uh, rising sphere. Potentially, he looks like he really might be like the uh, libertarian presidential candidate for 2024. And so how all of this then uh, plays out. So my one example here is, all right, one of the crucial, I would say, positive principles, maybe the positive, the core positive principle that the, that this crew, that this, this part of the libertarian specifically and libertarian philosophy as it's understood at its core, at the very least in terms of you know, what's now been described maybe as a narco-capitalism, those types of libertarians. The core of their moral argument has to do with a combination of the non-aggression principle and then voluntarism, which is actually comes in a logical uh, subsequent out of the non-aggression principle, meaning that they, they, they're, principled commitment is that the that the moral individual the natural the naturally legal individual should cannot be forced into 
uh, action by the state. And that, and, and so that then is an extension of the, uh, non-aggression principle that basically says that individuals should not, should, uh, follow the non-aggression principle and not, uh, use force against each other, except in pure self-defense, but then also most especially that the state should then also, uh, not be allowed to use, uh, aggression, aggressive force against, uh, against other states and or other individuals, except in pure self-defense. Although the, you know, the, the ultimate end in many ways is the, the minimal is the minarchists, the, either the minimal minimalization of the state, uh, and, or the total, uh, abolition or withering away of the state. And so this is where you then get into, I believe, um, sort of, philosophical philosophical misconceptions or not quite uh ripened uh, understandings of political philosophy but i'll put that aside for now by pointing out that in terms of these big things that 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 principle then leads them to be on the right side of for example scott horton as a leading anti-war voice for many many for many many years right he's He's been doing uh, anti-war radio programming, thousands, oh, you know, I think well over 2,000 programs in the 21st century uh, and a whole array and lots of really important information and, and writing. And he's basically, in a certain way, like Ryan Dawson is one of the people in this sphere who knows the most about some of the details about September 11th. And Scott Horton is one of the people who knows the most details about the 9-11 wars and the, geo, the, the geopolitics uh, of all of that. And so my main point is, is that when you actually look at the way that the, it's never the case, it's, I, you can't think of an instance where the public narrative, i.e. the intelligence line of these operations that are then used to go to war it's never the case that the that the public narrative and that the state is actually saying we're going to go aggress upon these people. No, it's always seen as some kind of self-defense. It's always done under the the aegis or the rubric of defense, the defense department, self-defense. In in and what became obviously outrageous in the post 9/11 era, obviously was the idea of preemptive self-defense, which was what they then began to propose as the reason, the deep reason behind the uh, attack on Iraq uh, and overthrowing Saddam Hussein was, of course, what are you going to wait for? The the smoking bullet uh, of, uh, of a nuclear cloud, as people like Condoleezza Rice said. And there's something very compelling about that, about that logic. I mean, if you know, if you, let's say you know, or at least you're saying that you know that these people are planning, let's say, you know, planning to, uh, to threaten you at the very least, then the question of self-defense becomes much more difficult. It's not a clear cut, clean kind of moral principle about when 
How long do you sit in your home and wait for a conspiracy to uh, kill your family to unfold as, as long as you know it? So then the problem is, is that you cannot depend on the non-aggression principle in relationship to uh, political wisdom. And the non-aggression principle will always continually be violated with deception. So if you allow the, if you, if you don't defend your people from the deception in the first place, there's no way you're going to be able to enforce the non-aggression principle at the level of a society or a nation state. And so this then becomes crucial, I would say, in terms of the total and utter failure at the very, that's the best faith, the utter failure of someone like Scott Horton, uh, if not the leading libertarian voice, anti-war voice, to actually root out the forensics, the actual forensics, the military forensics of something like September 11th. And finally, I believe a lot of this is just sort of proven. For example, you know, let's say Ryan Dawson and Scott Horton, these crucial public intellectuals of their own key spheres here, right? Ryan Dawson is the guru of this whole sphere in terms of 9-11. And Scott Horton is the guru of this sphere in terms of post 9-11 or 9-11 wars. And yet, and they're both very well read. They both have tons of, they have, they know probably, I'd say Ryan knows probably 10 times the amount about the details and specifics of September 11th than I do. Okay. I'd say Scott Horton knows at least 10 times, maybe, maybe, maybe 50 times as much as I do in terms of the details of the 9-11 wars and the geopolitics of uh, all of that and the geography of all of that and the history. So there's an issue here when these two guys that are this well read, this well learned in terms of these crucial areas are still here. What are we? 25 years after the publishing of the uh, clean break paper? 25 years after the publishing of the Clean Break Paper, and you know, people people in those spheres have been talking about the Clean Break Paper for 20 years. I'd say probably, maybe not that much, but some somewhere in that realm, at least like during the post 9/11 era. Scott, I'm sure you can find Scott Horton beginning to talk about the Clean Break Paper, and yet every time we hear them talking about it, bringing it in, including Scott Horton, bringing it in. Uh, with his de- in his debate with uh, with uh, with Bill Crystal, Ryan Dawson. Every time he brings it up, in terms of Syria, for example, it appears that they haven't even read the document, and it's not long. It's it's like a few pages, and it very clearly articulates a lot of what we've seen, which is the difference between the overthrow that was called for in Iraq versus the rollback, i.e. the destabilization that we've seen exactly proceed in Syria. So that just, that right there, there's something really problematic just in terms of the, the intellectual integrity 
of these uh, two pillars of this community that they can't even get that right. And then when you begin to assess all of the, the wake, the political wake of not getting that little, it may seem like a little thing. They just, all they do is conflate uh, overthrow with, uh, with rollback. That's a small little, that's just, you know, some people like would accuse me of, uh, you know, of being obsessing over language or meaning or something like that. But when you begin to actually parse that out and see the, all the, then what someone like Ryan Dawson did in terms of, let's put aside 9-11, let's now focus on 11-9. And to this day, Ryan Dawson is probably one of the most important apologists, people who cover up for the 11-9 perps, including all the way, all the way to someone like Trump in this entire alt media sphere, I would think. And if you were just able to then see that the fulfillment of the Syria operation in many ways, the fact that that there was a pushback by people like, quote unquote, Michael Flynn or Trump against the, quote unquote, neocons in relationship to their plan to overthrow, uh, you know, Assad in Syria. They, there's a whole arc of failed analysis that goes on the back of just not having just quoted from the clean break uh, paper. And the final thing I'll say in terms of Scott Horton, before I hand it back to you, Greg, is that the, this then comes down to a problem of a, uh, a lack of uh, nerve or a, a, a failure of courage potentially in terms of the necessity of public discourse in relationship to someone who who claims to be uh, anti-war and to claim the non-aggression principle because if you don't defend your people and the others against the aggression of the lie the aggression of the deception that always is the prelude to the physical destruction of the war then you there's you you're you're then you're just some kind of chris hedges hand ringer you know on the right that is the way that i would put it it's basically what a nice little principle you have you you won the debate against bill crystal but you failed to even debate the right person and you failed to to make the right uh, basic claim which is to accuse bad faith not in terms of a difference of policy, but bad faith in terms of the lie, of the deception, of the intelligence operation not being the military operation in the case of September 11th. And so because Scott Horton fails to actually just put forth the written words of the clean break neocons, he, it then he ultimately leaves it in a place of where he fails to uh, call uh, call out uh, bad intention, which is if you think about the best part of the law and holding people to account for crimes, it all comes down to intent. So it's as if basically, let's say someone ran into someone uh, in their car. They ran into someone on the street, a whistleblower on the street got run over on a car and there's a very big difference between, Oh, this person was, was drunk and stumbled. It was a blunder. They blundered it. 
versus, oh, this person, this was part of a, a deep operation to kill this uh, whistleblower and the intent was to kill. There's a very big, big difference between that. And it ultimately comes down to a failure of this moral nerve based on a failure of, of, uh, of some kind of public intellect to not accuse, maybe it's not Bill Crystal, but to accuse those that went to war in Iraq of the actual ultimate crimes here, which is the actual orchestration of the acts which would then justify their wars, the ongoing wars too, right? Uh, focus on Afghanistan. So you have to deal with 9-11. You have to deal with the actuality of 9-11. So if you don't call out that, oh, it looks like whoever wrote the clean break paper got exactly what they wanted in terms of uh, Iraq and Syria and not that, you know, Trump pushed back against the deep state or they failed in Syria or something like that. Then you, you're just setting, you're just on the road to uh, reinforcing the first aggression against your people, which was the, the deception Remember, a deception based on a murder, if you're talking about September 11th. So you fail to even identify the suspects. You can't enforce the, the non-aggression principle has to be enforced by, by people. But in this case, men has to be enforced by men who are willing to hold account the perpetrators of the aggression, in this case, mainly other men. And if they don't do that in the first place and they say, oh, these guys, yeah, okay, it was these other guys, you know, these Al-Qaeda guys who did this and then this whole other crew, including the whole axis between, held together by certain aspects of the neocons in terms of threads right back to the heart of an element, a key element of the long-term Israeli security establishment. That these people, they did it. They did it. They didn't wait for something to happen and then take advantage of it. This goes back to my critique uh, that I made at the Left Out Forum in relationship to uh, Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine where she has this incredible second to last chapter about losing the peace incentive that has is actually forensic data uh, suggesting motive of the Israeli security state for being behind 9-11. And yet the whole book is uh, a defense against quote unquote conspiracy theories at some level. And her whole analysis, the shock doctrine comes down to the idea of CIA psychiatry where you purposefully shot, put, put someone shock therapy, right? So-called therapy. In this case, shock trauma. You shock them and then you mold their mind based on the trauma. And the, so the analogy that I made is that it's as silly as claiming that CIA psychiatrists waited for people to like stumble, get drunk and stumble and push their finger into a, a light socket and then took advantage of that time to then pattern their mind in terms of mind control. Get the heck out of here. That's absurd. And so that then translates then to the an absurdity that there is a uh, there's a uh, an underlying absurdity 
in terms of those that would say, okay, the neocons, they, this is everything they wanted, the project for the new American century, the clean break, the, uh, the Zionist wars in the Middle East, the U.S. Uh, imperial rollout into uh, South Central Asia. And they just waited for something to happen. And that they even then tra tracks back to problems of forensics of like, oh, this then, we're the responsible 9-11 truthers where we say that the hijackers did actually do it and these guys just let them do it again. That putting aside all of the forensics that show that not to be the case, but just the underlying logic of it, if you actually believe that this, that this group of people, let's say you're Scott Horton, you believe that the neocons had this whole agenda to shape the 21st century. And then you, is it really, it's not, is it really plausible that they would just wait? That they, this was going to happen and they just wait? Or that they're going to hope that, that some guys, that their intelligence assets are going to successfully hijack planes and then successfully run them into the targets and then the dark, dark targets are going to be successfully uh, enough damage to to create the enough of the mass trauma to do what they're going to do. That's absurd on the, that's prima facie absurd. But then you, then that then shuts off the question of the actual forensics that you need to deal with. Whether it's actually just the, you know, whatever, three to five pages of the clean break paper, or it's ground zero forensics in the case of September 11th. Hey. <laughs> I completely agree with you. And um, going back, circling back to what you were saying about, um, you know, the non-aggression principle, it's just, as you said, like, it's just not enough in terms of, like, it has to actually be backed up. Like, you know, you need to back the non-aggression principle up with, say, maybe, you know, aggressive, aggressive truth, maybe. It might be a way to Aggressive like defense, a, right? Because that it is. That's right. Yeah. And so you, but like... And, th and this is another conversation for another time, but geopolitically, the non-aggression principle will run you into a lot of trouble when, or like this idea of like anti-interventionism, we just leave other people alone and they'll leave us alone or whatever. And in principle, I mean, that's nice, but in the geopolitical situation that we're in, it's more complicated than that. I mean, it's just like, it's more complicated than if like the United States were to just simply give up all of its military bases and just come home and build Fortress America or whatever that... All of our problems would go away. I mean, you know, it's more complicated than that geopolitically because there actually are, there actually are subversive, hostile, foreign um, elements that are very um, that have, as we've identified with the eleven nine operation, even going before that, and ever since, are using um, foreign, you know, aided by elements domestically here in the uh, here in the U.S. that we've identified before. Um, you know, we don't need to rehash some of those networks now. So it's way more complicated than that. And that's where an effort to really try to um, get to the bottom of things such as both 9-11 and 11-9 would be key to actually instilling like an actual real um, an actual real uh, serious um, productive usage of the Paul of the principles of non-aggression and anti-interventionism. So that's one area. And then you mentioned uh, the coming together in some ways with like more so Ryan Dawson, maybe than a Scott Horton, but both of them. I mean, this is a problem with uh, some of the people we're going to identify here as well as a Ryan Dawson, who I think you correctly identified coming together with in terms of their narratives with 
key proponents of um, of around something like September 11th. And I mean, remember during this live stream, we're discussing here Dawson. Um, we're referring to Dawson with these other um, activists. You can maybe talk a little more about that than I could. And maybe we'll bring that go back to that before we're finished here. Dawson name dropping, you know, Bernard Carrick, of course, receiving uh, money and going to Israel and his relationship with Aitan uh, Wertheimer. But then meanwhile, you listen to Ryan Dawson talk about Antifa and the organized left and the people that are out to destroy Trump and it's and MAGA and American conservative patriotism or whatever, and it sounds very similar to your Bernie Carricks and your Rudy Giuliani. So, I mean, that's another consequence of not trying to get to the bottom of like these, um, you know, what's really going on with with events like this. And so it's very, um, it's very important to just simply go beyond like these very, um, these very paradigmatic, or I don't know if paradigmatic is even a word, but these paradigms and these talking points and this idea of the concept of, I ultimately think the concept of non-aggression principle and anti-interventionism and just leaving other people alone and all this and not going to war with people, it's ultimately a pretty toothless um, mindset when it's not backed up by deep, hard truth on these elements, on these areas that are of such importance and so now this brings us to um it's very interesting you know we're going to delve into scott horton here and uh scott horton being this preeminent uh libertarian foreign policy voice and a recent debate he had i believe was in new york city at the soho forum with the person who is identified by a lot of people um as the arch neocon like the person who is most identified with american neoconservative and that is bill crystal and this debate between horton and crystal at the soho forum in forum in new york city which i think encapsulates a lot of this problem and it goes back to prior themes about the nature of neoconservatism and um and what it is and that we have delved into in the past on our programs and we'll continue to delve into. But um, I think that this debate between Horton and Crystal, as well as this follow-up interview that Horton did with, uh, with Dave Smith is very, um, very instructive in terms of what we've been, what we've been discussing and where I think that in a lot of areas, all the way from the actual events itself of September 11th and the global war on terror that is, followed since then to the clean break document to even an understanding of neoconservatism and what it is and how it works. Um, all of this, I think is encapsulated or a lot of aspects of it is, is very much um, identifiable through this debate with the arch American neoconservative who we more increasingly see as yes, obviously a very, 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 very bad actor. I mean, it was Bill Crystal helping lead the media propaganda efforts to push for these illegal wars after the events of September 11th. And of course the lead up to it, his role with project for new American century, his role in pushing a pro, you know, pro, pro, um, pro-war propaganda, of course, leading up to it and after. But in a lot of ways, just increasingly is just a person to focus on who I don't want to quite say is a boogeyman because, I mean, he is a very important and very destructive figure, but a somebody who is focused on is like this be-all, end-all. Like if you know who Bill Crystal is and you know who the Kagans are and you know who David Frum is, then you understand neoconservatism. And it fits into this narrow box, I think, of uh, of 
also, also going back to what we call 11-9, that you can paint, see the neocons were in a conspiracy to destroy Trump because Bill Crystal is a neocon and he look at how he talks about Trump and look at all these wars that Bill Crystal helped start. And so once again, just an, an understanding, I don't know how much of this is willing. I don't know how much this is unwilling, but a, at the very least, at best, a lack of understanding and at worst, very deceptive, um, deliberate deception in terms of uh, what the neocon, who the war hawks are and what they represent and trying to make it out to just be this simple, very, I think, ultimately simplistic analysis. But let's let's delve into this debate between um, Bill Crystal and Scott Horton and some of the areas where, you know, Scott Horton, I mean, I would say if I was an observer, a neutral observer, I had to have to give Scott Horton the advantage in a lot of areas, obviously, over Bill Crystal, who just pushes the typical um American, American, as we maybe call them, paleo neoconservative talking points about you know spreading democracy and uh, the importance of the American role in the world. And obviously, I mean that's that's very easy to um, to push back against. But you know we can get into this and also show where Horton, under the idea that he's owning Bill Crystal and he's exposing you know Bill Crystal and the neocons for what they are, ultimately, in our view, ends up. Falling short, and then the follow up with this uh, discussion with uh, Dave Smith, which delved even further into this, um, to this debate and the uh, and the, the talking points and the victory over Crystal. So let's 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 get into this. Uh, let's get into this Soho Forum debate. Unless you want to say something else beforehand. No, let let's let's get into it, Greg. And actually, maybe we the way we could get into it is by uh, exactly as you noted about the way that Bill Crystal is uh, used. Uh, he is used. He sort of becomes almost like the, for this crew, for this set of libertarians, he becomes the George Soros of the, of the neocons at some level. And that, and in, 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 the, and in multiple ways. So one thing that we could look at is that I think they acknowledge this when Dave Smith debriefed Scott on his uh, wrecking of uh, Bill Crystal, and he did wreck. He wrecked Bill Cr Crystal. Bill Crystal looked like a another weight class in terms of what he brought to the table. And Dave Smith accurately portrayed it as Bill Crystal basically throwing in the towel at some at some point. And then and then Scott Horton describing it as you know this this is the son of the you know, the biological but also the intellectual son of the of the godfather of the neoconservative movement in some ways, or at least the father, you know, maybe the godfather is actually correct in terms of Irving Crystal, and maybe Leo Strauss is the, the, the father, the intellectual father of the neoconservative movement. And they like in, and all of that build up, and he's an intellectual lightweight Bill Crystal is. And that's exactly true. I'd also throw in there in terms of the intellectual godfathers of the neoconservative movement would be a Norman Poderitz of Commentary Magazine, who actually, um, who actually a lot of these neocons either did not support Trump or were very, at least rhetorically neutral. But Norman Poderitz was also very much in this vein of Crystal and uh, Strauss, and he openly endorsed uh, Trump, I guess, as like the lesser evil over Hillary Clinton. So I'd throw a Poderitz in there as well in his ultimate support of Trump. So. Well, that's very interesting because then the the way that you can also then see the the role of a Bill Crystal in the uh, mind sphere of these libertarians 
is he acts as the reverse psychology imprint, uh, sort of imprint that we noticed before the election of Trump actually took place. We questioned immediately whether there was uh, not only a different uh, whole crew of neocons that ultimately supported Trump, as you're pointing out, Greg, and we then evolved that analysis of the paleo-neocons, which is Crystal is one of, if not the leading known paleo-neocon alongside someone like Robert Kagan, who were never Trumpers, uh, versus this uh, other crew, the neo, the new neocons. And we then also then did another level of analysis around that in terms of Israel firsters and Israel seconders and the, the Bill Crystals and Robert Kagans for all their Zionism and all the accusations of their uh, maybe primary uh, Zionist drive in terms of the their neoconservative, uh, their neoconservatism and their project for a new American century goals they're actually Israel seconders. They are hype. They're hyper Zionists, but they are actually are what they say they are. They are American imperialists. Um, they they don't seek to move to uh, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and run the world from there. No, they want to run it from the from the swamp. That's where that's where it is. And they believe basically um, in, I think, a very twisted version of like American global power, but they want a, you know, they believe in a, or they espouse um, a world that is quote unquote led by American military power, American economic power, the quote unquote democratic institutions that were set up post World War II. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of them differ from people who actually would be, have no problem with seeing like elements of like global power being out of the hands of the United States or or less inclined to like, you know, actually participate in ground wars for quote unquote democracy if the, say, the strength of, uh, you know, Israel or balance of power in the Middle East would be guaranteed even by that not taking place. I mean, these people are very much, as you say, American imperialists at heart in terms of they want American global power, like, you know, American military power, American economic power to shape the world. And that's one area where I think that there is a difference with, um, this other element where I don't think it's not quite that simple. And so just simply saying Bill Crystal's Israel first, there was a lot of that as we'll get into in the conversation with uh, Dave Smith, where that was brought up and like Bill Crystal being like this uh, leader of like this clique, which includes these people who I don't think are quite as ideologically identified with a uh, Bill Crystal as a, uh, as an Adam or excuse me, as a uh, Scott Horton makes it out to be. It's not, this is ultimately at heart. It is American imperialism. That becomes like a, and that becomes an issue in some ways because, like, they are portrayed as simply, like, representing, like, the evils of the American state and all this and the U.S. empire and all this. And there's a problem with that because it's not America per se. It's not like this is not. A, but at the same time, like, they are acting as a as mouthpieces for a very, I would say, twisted version of um, American global power. But ultimately, it's not as simple as just like, you know, they're shaping the wars for Israel and all this. I mean, it's more, it's not that simple. So, No, and so this is another example of like some really simple, a, a sort of gross level of logical analysis that seems like that should have made the rounds uh, in terms of these kinds of levels of 
uh, critical thinkers and uh, you know political dissidents of of some sort, especially during the 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 Trump era. You know, something like, all right, what does the clean break paper actually say? What does that actually mean about what we're seeing? Then something like, oh, what what about a, the concept of a neocon split? And that the 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 quote unquote neocons are anti-Trump is not really what's going on. And what we saw was like it took like even people like Robbie Martin, who are fairly uh, interested in figuring out what's going on. It took him a few years, it looked like to me, uh, at least into the Trump administration to even begin to get his feet under him that there was this whole other crew uh, backing Trump, even though he had all the data in, in the first place. And Robbie's way ahead uh, at some level from like these sort of Scott Horton types, it looks like, at least publicly. Maybe there's something going on more privately. And definitely, like Ryan Dawson is a regressive uh, in terms of uh, the political analysis of just these basic things of, oh, have you ever heard of, uh, you know, the George Soros boogeyman? So Bill Kristol is then sort of used, even his uh, opposition to Trump is used as a way to actually give uh, credibility to the way Trump was being marketed in a massive psychographical uh, warfare operation that included, you know, pe- the, a government that people like Ryan Dawson and people like Scott Horton should have been interested in, in terms of the Netanyahu Israeli government were key players in the psych- psychographical framing warfare part of the Trump operation. And so part of that was just like the same guys who, uh, you know, the Arthur Finkelstein kids who helped install, uh, you know, or Arthur Finkelstein himself helped install Netanyahu in the first place. It was his children, Finky's kids, were the ones who led the way on the usage of George Soros as the uh, the boogeyman with all of then the cold the overlay of the dog the allegations of the anti-semitic dog whistling on top of that that brings the ADL into the mix and meanwhile it got it got to such a fever pitch that it was the son of Netanyahu himself installed by uh, Arthur Finkelstein himself who then the son Yair Netanyahu during the Trump years tweeting out the sort of the Jewish conspiracy meme that basically puts George Soros at the head and then it's, uh, you know, on down to Ehud Barak and all kinds of uh, other people. And so that's an example of the of the the pitch that this kind of uh, lack of understanding uh, can uh, can reach. If you allow someone like Bill Kristol then to be used as a boogeyman for an entire understanding of a, especially of a dissident group that if he's, if crystals against something, then that may, must make that thing good, or that must make that thing uh, against the establishment in the case of, in the case of Trump. And all it did, all we needed was one step of analysis beyond that. And we kept making it, we kept on making it. And I'm sure some people got it, but it didn't apparently um, make its way even to uh, deserving even a thought from uh, from these from these crews. So on up to the point of where it then becomes uh, Scott Horton in this debate to sort of seal up. It's sort of like an end point in many ways of the, 
you know, 20th anniversary of September 11th, the end, it's, you know, after the Afghanistan war has been brought to a close. And that was the 9-11 war in many ways, even though the 9-11 wars rage on uh, in many ways. And definitely in terms of the ongoing rise of the uh, surveillance state, the biosurveillance state, remember this very little attended to part of the Project for New American uh, Centuries uh, white paper rebuilding uh, America's defenses that talked specifically about the potential political usefulness of bioweapons. Uh, ethnically uh, targeted bioweapons may at some point become go from a tool of terror to a politically useful tool, I think, is the, the kind of language. And then the wake of September 11th and all the deaths of the microbiologists. And now here we are up into the era of uh, 311 and uh, and a biowarfare, a global biowarfare pandemic uh, that is as or way more serious in many ways in terms of its ongoing and uh, globally uh, and long-term Im uh, implications than even September 11th itself. And so these are the kinds of structures that have been left in place. And almost like, like Scott Horton debating Bill Crystal on you guys were wrong to go to war to sort of seal the end of the whole 20, 20th anniversary of 9-11 in many ways was helping Bill Crystal to, and his whole crew, crew to seal the credible door on 9-11, nothing to see here, except for our, we shouldn't have responded the way that we, the, the way that we did. And so I think that, that we should let's let's hone in a little bit on this, uh, the, uh, what actually happened in that debate and then the way that Dave Smith and, and Scott Horton talked about it, because I actually think they were much more accurate. They were much more instructive in the way they talked about it than the actual debate itself was in terms of helping us understand maybe some of these more counterintelligence uh, dynamics. Yeah, and the way, um, as you said, ultimately, I think. For as much as Scott Horton just completely wiped the floor with Crystal in terms of just, um, now Crystal, as you identified, basically gave up during the debate. I mean, like when after their first, uh, after they initially talked for the first time, you can see, you know, Crystal's basically zoned out, like he's out of it, like he's just sitting reading and just like, just not even responding to anything. Like he was just a defeated man from like the, from basically, from the first time that Scott Horton spoke on and it's uh, in, in his lame defenses of like America and why America's a force for good in the world. I mean, it just can't, it can't stack up to like the very honest, I think uh, obvious criticisms and exposures of things like the, the basic lies of things like the, the myth of the reasons for going to war, you know, and these countries, but ultimately where I think it's ultimately does not, where it ultimately is the problem at its very root, its very fundamental heart, is ultimately, and it's interesting because uh, Scott Horton and uh, Dave Smith compared this debate with Crystal and Horton to the Ron Paul-Rudy Giuliani uh, mm -hmm. exchange in the presidential debate back during the 2008 presidential campaign, which I believe for me was like this political moment for me really that like where I was just noticed, like that's my first political memory was uh, Ron Paul and Giuliani and uh, and remembering that, and Ron Paul was uh, speak was this 
truth teller who was speaking the truth when really what he did was simply say that uh, our policies caused September 11th. And ultimately, if you look at that, I mean, like this was as hailed as like this famous moment that like helped really um, increase Ron Paul's visibility in the eyes of people and really put him out there as like this truth teller who was exposing the the war, um, the, the the war hawks and all this one ultimately you know, Giuliani got the final say in that debate, if we recall correctly, in exchange by saying, well, you know, you're blaming America for September 11th. Mm-hmm. It's just absurd. And and so the, this comparison of the uh, Giuliani-Ron uh, Paul moment when really, I think, all, at its deepest core, and it wasn't quite that where, like, I mean, Giuliani, like, was basically ridiculing Ron Paul for saying that blowback in America's policies caused September 11th. It wasn't like that here. You know, you didn't have Bill Crystal like, ridiculing um, Scott Horton for that. Bill Crystal was in no position to ridicule Scott Horton for anything. But at the same time, ultimately, Scott Horton's coming from a basic fundamental mindset uh, of reinforcing the event and the official, um, the official, I would say, myth of the event that, um, that the Bill Crystals of the world were able to push so much propaganda in the pages of the Weekly Standard on Fox News through neoconservative talk radio and people around him that was used. And, you know, you've got Scott Horton using, pushing those same basic myths, you know, it was Al-Qaeda attacked us and blowback and these policies, you know, going to war in Iraq. Well, it's just a, it's a criminally misguided effort to capitalize off of us being attacked by Al Qaeda on September 11th, and you know Iraq Saddam Hussein didn't attack us on September 11th. Al Qaeda did. Why are we blaming Saddam Hussein for what Al Qaeda did? And so, at the fa- basic fundamental level, Scott Horton, much like Ron Paul, the mistake you know, Ron Paul and Giuliani in that moment from 2000 and uh, the 2008 presidential debates, at fundamental core, Scott Horton is reinforcing the same event that Bill Crystal is capitalized off of and profit off of. And I think without, without exposing like, or at least attempting to try to get, get down to and exposing the, the, the myths of like the official September 11th narrative that's been put out there is um, conventional truth that ultimately I think somebody like a Bill Crystal, despite really being made to look terrible in this debate with, uh, with Scott Horton. Ultimately, I don't think that crew loses that much because they're still able to argue their horribly flawed and um, admittedly uh, terrible views on um, intervention and going to war and the war on terror. Still arguing against that, against people who at the basic level are still covering knowingly or unknowingly for the same for the event, for the same official narrative behind the event that they have uh, used to their advantage for the last uh, 20 plus years. So I think at a fundamental level, I think that's a big um, negative as much as Horton put out productive information. There are other critiques that we have as well, geopolitically, as you mentioned with the clean break and all this, but at a basic fundamental level, I think that um, Horton didn't come out of this thing as much as he, you know, he did win the debate, so to speak, but I, I, I don't think it was as effective a victory for sure. And I think it continues to allow the crystals and their ilk to continue to have this, um, to have this platform and influence because ultimately it's still not just not getting to the bottom of the event they have used to promote 
their wars for all these years. And of course, the events that they called for leading up to it, going back to what you said earlier, oh, this was all this coincidental accident. Oh, the American deep state and their, you know, Israeli Likudnik partners or whoever else just happened to take advantage of the perfect crime. And so I think it's very, um, it's not as, I think the victory kind of rings hollow from a bigger picture perspective when you're still meeting these people and willing to promote the same narrative that they are on the events that allowed them to push all of this propaganda so effectively. Yeah. And it, there's an aspect of it that reminds me of, there's a little bit of, it feels a little bit like a, a, t- a teenager politics at some level. And that th- there's this sort of, yeah, yeah, we got him. We, we beat up the bully, you know, or something like that in terms of Bill Crystal, And, but in terms of a actual, the kind of real, real politic, the real kind of politics that actually will uh, change things for the better and help uh, deploy the non-aggression principle in practice. It's ultimately a, a pyrrhic victory at best. At worst, it actually becomes like a, uh, I think, a reinforcement of the, of the cover-up. Very simply, like if you, it, it, for example, if there's someone who, uh, who knows someone who uh, murdered uh, someone, and then the, uh, the family of that, that person who got murdered came and, uh, and uh, challenged this person person in a bar and this person is bill crystal let's say in a bar and bill crystal you know was responding to to the anger of this murdered uh, the the relative of this murdered individual and you know s- swung back too much and either hurt or killed this uh, person in response and then someone like scott horton comes out and basically uh, debates the response of Bill Bill Crystal. You overreacted. Your people have a bad philosophy about how to deal with uh, people who are uh, traumatized by uh, you know by other people. While not actually saying, "Oh yeah, it was your but wasn't it your buddy? Wasn't it your buddy who actually killed this guy's family in the first place?" And of course, Scott Horton morally makes that point. He makes that point in the in in the moral arc of things in making his blowback argument that the there was a justness, not that it was right the the alleged action in response by Bin Laden and all that, but that Scott Horton over and over makes the case about the blowback hypothesis and about how it's understandable and. In that framework, it is understandable, and it seems like it's the moral uh, language. But not if they didn't actually do it. It's not. It's actually pretty bad because you're actually blaming somebody who didn't actually do something while then also debating the guy, the friend of the guy who actually did do it without calling out the original murder. So at some level, you've got to see it's, it's a, it, it legitimizes the debate rather than the pointing the finger at the actual murder at some level. And it reminds me a lot of, of like what you just said, that they, 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 they referred to it as the uh, similar to the Giuliani-Ron uh, Paul moment. And 
It is in terms of like the intellectuals, sort of like the the movement nerds at some level, because it wasn't actually very, pol- it wasn't a political moment in that way. That was a, on a debate stage that was for the, you know, the potential place of being the Republican candidate for president. And, but they also then missed the point, like you said, they totally missed the point about the, 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 what was wrong with that Ron Paul moment that sure it was a big moment for the Ron Paul people and, and for the libertarians and for, and for in an interesting way, the, the, their allies on the blowback left in terms of understanding the blowback of American imperial foreign policy. But for the nine 11 truth folks, the real nine 11 truth folks, the people who are also for a quote-unquote non-interventionist American foreign policy, i.e. a non-aggression principle-based American foreign policy, but based on truth, that was actually a, a, a massive, uh, um, not only a failure, but almost like a betrayal by Ron Paul. And th- th- there's a whole background there in terms of the, all of the dynamics of that even relates to we are change's role in 9-11 truth. And then Ron Paul in relationship to 9-11 truth, Alex Jones, Infowars. Uh, and this is putting aside the real, very serious questions about 9-11 truth itself. But that that moment was not actually, that was a very similar moment in a certain way, but in a bad way. And this is what they're not looking at, that that was also then Ron Paul uh, not only allowing Rudy Giuliani the ultimate upper hand by by easily folding it into well, you America's guilty uh, for having been attacked. You're never going to win that debate. But he also then helped seal the deal about what was credible speech in terms or credible inquiry in terms of September 11th and the 9/11 wars and the geopolitics of all of that at a at the highest, uh, you know, national political level. And, and meanwhile, Scott Horton, I would say, was actually maybe even more aggressive at some level, in a nice way, a very civil way, in pushing against, or sort of almost like browbeating Robbie Martin on his own podcast against the truther hypothesis. Uh, then Ron Paul was even to me being much more direct about my own hypothesis about who did 9-11 and why and how Ron Paul, if he was serious, not only about uh, the problem of uh, high treason finance and the Federal Reserve, but then also about a non-interventionist foreign policy that I then called a, because he's a doctor I reference, a do-no-harm foreign policy that then you have to deal with the fact of how do the wars, how are the, how is the harm started in the first place? The real serious harm. It started by harm. And the harm is then coupled with deception. And then I pointed out a crew of neoconservatives that were looked to be associated with those who actually did September 11th for those reasons. And that wars are all, almost always started with deception, especially when they're started uh, in relationship to what's alleged to be a democracy or a country that's acting in its self-defense. You're almost always going to have a deception. And Ron Paul did not browbeat me or uh, you know uh, push back in the way that uh, Giuliani did to him or that Scott Horton did uh, Robbie Martin on his own podcast. 
he basically acknowledged my basic point. This is on C-SPAN, uh, Washington Journal, maybe 2012 or 13, so somewhere in there, I think. Um, and admitted that I had a, that my point was sort of unavoidable in terms of the basis of most to all wars on deception, but then that he didn't have the information that I had uh, in terms of this other thing and then pointed out that the 9-11 commission looked to be set up to fail. So I just want to point out that there is, there is room for more aggressive uh, uh, truth-telling out there and it can sometimes result in not in sort of a blowback like a Giuliani ultimately turning Ron Paul's milk toast non-interventionist uh, response uh, in the debate around 9-11 and the wars back around, but it can actually further the discourse. It can further the acceptable lines for where we can begin to speak publicly. And so that ultimately is like my, the, the core of my argument for uh, th this crew of people. And that would include even then like the Martins and Robbie and Abby Martin, but then also include um, Scott Horton and, uh, and, um, and Dave Smith. And as human beings, I, I actually, you know, we, we, uh, putting aside the Martins for a second, we've always acknowledged that, that Robbie and Abby Martin are some of, if not the most, like, you know, talented uh, documentarian uh, journalist types uh, who are brothers, who are siblings of, uh, of, of this, of their set, basically. Uh, I, I think that's, you know, there's maybe just a handful of other people that you could point to. However, their analysis we pointed to is lacking in very significant ways. And ultimately, Robbie is, at this point, I'd say, at least three to five years behind on the 11-9 uh, operation and the implications uh, of it and just beginning to reach a place of potential non-denial around it while then also now beginning to make some progress on the re again make some progress on the 9-11 thing where he stalled out for a while would look to be in some kind of support of his sister's regression on 9-11 uh, on after she came under pressure and she sort of went some kind of a John Gold uh, route. People can go look back at what that might mean. Um, uh, we've discussed it before. Um, but they, but I, I see Robbie Martin making headway now in terms of 9-11. His new research in terms of the delving into the intelligence angle in a very particular fashion, especially in terms of Israeli intelligence of uh, following, apparently protecting or cultivating or, you know, framing uh, the, the alleged hijackers, the, Al the alleged Al-Qaeda cells in all of these locations. And there's a lot of deep research there while also not rejecting the military uh, high angle part of the operation like some other people have a tendency to do. And so he's open to that. He's not very firmly uh, speaking uh, about what common sense, what, what, you know, the basic physical forensics of September 11th force you to acknowledge about who could have possibly done it and, and, uh, and why, but putting them aside for now, and we'll, we'll, we'll delve some more into that because there's more, there's more stuff to deal with in terms of how to 
properly analyze both 9-11 and 11-9 forensically, uh, I think, and why it politically matters for this moment. Um, well, so we'll deal with some more of that. But I just want to say that as human beings, I, I, you know, having not really known that much about the specific work of uh, someone like Scott Horton, I knew some. I've, I've listened to some of his radio shows before, and, uh, and there's been a lot of value there. And there's also been times I remember like hearing him, uh, you know, let certain people off the hook. I remember him letting um, uh, Alan, I forget this name, this Democratic congressman, Alan Grayson, uh, off uh, the Zionist hook a little bit too much uh, for me, as it seemed like it uh, in terms of one of his interviews. But in general, I've had an interesting, uh, 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 I believe he's brought a lot of value to the table that I've seen. And it is interesting. I remember going to a, I think it was a, a 10th Amendment. Um, maybe it was even done, put on by Michael Bolden, I think. Maybe the a 10th Amendment um, uh, gathering seminar or maybe a, a, a whole day uh, kind of uh, event in downtown LA, probably in 2010 or something like that. And he was asked specifically, uh, Maybe did I ask? I can't remember. Someone did about September 11th and the OBL uh, thing, and he, you know, he he was respectful. He he, um, you know, did it very similarly, like the way he did with uh, Robbie, where it was it was a he just said he didn't believe the truthers that were right or something like that. That was the sort of the way that he put it. but my impression has generally been that he, uh, and my impression now is that he, uh, I, I like him as a human. Let me say it like that. And I, and I also really like Dave Smith as a human uh, in terms of what I get a, a sense of them. And yet politically, there is a major reckoning that needs to happen, especially right now, especially with what all that we have on our table and especially the role that these people play in terms of a crucial milieu, which is some kind of independent potential political thought, uh, especially on, on the libertarian right in certain spheres that really connect back to the left. And remember, one of the reasons that we first got into this whole line of analysis is because uh, Robbie and Abby, who are unabashedly left, had decided to have Scott Horton on as their sort of big geopolitical uh, uh, analyst guests for the 20th uh, anniversary of September 11th in conjunction with the Afghanistan uh, war uh, ending. So there is this definite hook back to parts of the left. So there's a large full spectrum political implication here, I think, in terms of what these people either do or uh, don't do. Yeah, and I just wanted to say a follow up on that real quick. And this is something it's not we're not going to pursue this discussion uh, tonight, but I do think we um, there's a good chance we will circle back to this in the future. And that brings up interesting questions regarding like this. Uh, I mean, the interesting questions getting into like the deeper nature of like the libertarian movement, as we know. And of course, you mentioned uh, at the start uh, Ludwig uh, von Mises and basically being sponsored, it looks like, by the Rockefeller uh, by elements of the Rockefeller family when he first came to the United States from Austria. And then there's other conversations to be had about like the Koch brothers and other aspects as far as libertarian movement. But there's an interesting um, history there with it, with, uh, and, and maybe we talk a little bit about this, but that the 
aspects of, you know, Scott Horton, to me, like, he's not a right winger, so to speak. Like, you listen to, to Scott Horton and Dave Smith talk about things like, you know, corruption and law enforcement, things like that aspects of uh aspects of the the real i think nature of the problem with uh with police violence with aspects of law enforcement and it sounds to me like a more principled version of in a more genuine version of what um alex jones would say years ago before he completely just abandoned any pretext of like uh being uh, uh as far as like completely just going into the side of like rah rah law enforcement cops you know they're conservative and they're trying to protect it so but it, it's so there's a lot of really good i think um overlap with say like the martins of the world from like this uh libertarian left perspective but there's also an underbelly and i don't even know how much perhaps like a dave smith or a scott horton are understanding this but there's an interesting backstory with like the history of like things like libertarian uh movement need to be taken into consideration overlap with some of the elements that they consider rightly so i think to be um antithetical to their 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 ideology of uh liberty and of uh certainly going even back to a combination of uh very bad uh domestic political operations as well as um foreign policy and geopolitics and um and if there was a conversation they had correctly stated the american war on terror post september 11th like the corrupting of the uh, as a as a very um as a vitally um negative moment in terms of like the conservative movement or the right wing in uh in America but there's a deeper conversation to even be had outside of that so it's interesting this overlap like this left libertarian overlap by say a Scott Horton who I don't think would fall into the paleo conservative libertarian uh mindset of like say Ron Paul or maybe even somebody who's relatively close it seems ideologically and uh Perhaps um, even in terms of uh, even in terms of some type of like mentor relationship, it seems like of say a Tom Woods, for example. But there's this overlapping of left libertarian in terms of the I think the good, but also very negative as we've talked about elements of uh, of geopolitics, of foreign policy. But it also comes with I think there is this. I don't know if I want to call it a dark side, but there is this deep history of aspects of what they espouse and believe in that I that there is a very controlled nature too in terms of a of an element that not only would be very antithetical or very um I'd say unsatisfactory to say the least to like people from the Martins milieu, but also I think from a bigger, even outside of like, you know, paradigms of left and right and conservative and liberal and progressive and whatever the opposite to progressive would be that I think really do cast a shadow over, over these political and otherwise ideological alignments. And so there's a deeper history to be, uh, really uncovered and dug into on that. And we talked about a little bit with like, say, Murray Rothbard when we did our program on Arthur Finkelstein and his network. But there's a deep history there to really uh, be delved into. And I think that's something that uh, we at The Antidote may put some focus on as we go into 2022 or even towards things you're talking about, like a potential perspective, uh, Dave Smith presidential campaign. So um, that's definitely something to come back to. But I wanted to at least bring that up here with relation to this uh, discussion with uh, Scott Horton and the Martins and these inroads it seems being made for some type of perhaps um, at some level or another political or ideological or activism based um, alliance at some level. And it's, I think, a much not nearly as negative or I would say 
dare I say, destructive as like the Glenn Greenwalds aligning with like the Tucker Carlson interest. But there's there's an element there that I think has a um, has a lot of negative to it as well. And so we'll, we'll get into that in the future. But I wanted to bring that up right now. I appreciate Just, that. And we should get into that in the future. And so I can see moving forward here, there's these three areas that we should continue to keep touching on. Uh, in the near future as we move forward. Now we're, we're recording on, uh, as you pointed out, uh, Halloween, October 31st, uh, two, 2021. And as we go into November, we're going to begin to do a, a deeper dive than we have done before in relationship to uh, Kennedy, the Kennedy assassination, the Kennedy administration, and uh, see what we can do in terms of uh, a fuller understanding of that and how that helps us understand uh, these uh, longer-term networks and our moment now. But in terms of this area that we've been covering uh, this evening, I, I can see there's still we still should continue to delve some more back into 9-11 forensics, the actual forensics surrounding September 11th. Uh, and that would not just be the military forensics, but the forensics of the entirety of the operation and what especially what people who either get sort of stuck in one of these uh, sort of three categories of uh, intelligence, i.e. The, the backstory, the legend or the counterintelligence, i.e. the cover up, which would, could include a bad faith uh, uh, proponent of 9-11 truth either as an individual or as a group or as a movement that could also be uh, very aptly covered in terms of a counter in, uh, intelligence investigation. What, uh, you know, what's the best way to defeat the opposition is to lead it, right? Of course, that whole dynamic is crucial. That would then also include things like limited hangouts uh, in terms of the, our main critique of Scott Horton in relationship to uh, Bill uh, Bill Crystal and how that ultimately plays out politically and intellectually by not challenging the originating uh, aggressive uh, act and the deception thereof, and then also the military forensics. What actually happened? What actually happened in terms of who did it? Who did what? And why? The kind of thing that ultimately gets you to. Uh, the uh, something such as a concept of justice, which is the truth applied. It's not just the truth uh, for the sake of the truth or a, a pornographic sort of scintillating approach to uh, endless um, uh, excitement by more and more truth, uh, so-called, but an application of the truth on reality, especially in these kinds of things. We're talking about things that are unabashedly criminal unabashedly criminal. And that it actually becomes one of the really key pieces here too that's being uh, missed then by this crew, which I think we could, should then continue the follow-up of the forensics uh, of this crew and this libertarian approach is that part of the issue here is that they're not actually making the strongest uh, argument and they're actually legally leading people into dead ends at some level because this is a, a key point. And I've mulled this over a lot and talked a good bit about it uh, in terms of September 11th, that there's a big difference between committing international war crimes based on a response to something that happened in the quote unquote homeland. There's not even, potentially there's not even a domestic crime that can be 
found, even if you were to find them, uh, you know, guilty under what jurisdiction, you know, on what what effective jurisdiction internationally in terms of war crimes, you're sort of stuck in the Vincent Bugliosi kind of uh, proposal of uh, of trying to get local DAs to indict George Bush for murder for lying us into uh, the Iraq war. But September 11th, if you actually get do the forensics, the forensics of it, then you actually begin to connect to actual crimes in the so-called homeland itself, such as things like murder, such as things like conspiracy to commit murder. Such as misprison, uh, such as treason, the only crime defined under the in the Constitution, Article Three, Section Three. That you could almost say that it's the the originating, it's the it's the uh, crime that gives meaning in the entirety of not only the uh, Article Three, the the branch of the judiciary, the the law in in uh, in the Republic. But I, in some way, it's because it's the only crime. It's obviously, if you see the Constitution as a contract, it is. It's contract law based on the natural, this is the, what I believe is the best way for us to understand this. It's we the people are, have natural rights and we contract a certain delegated and limited and well-defined group of administrative rights to the public sphere, i.e. the government. and. The, that contract, the only crime that actually sort of really breaks the contract is the crime of treason, i.e. you're doing the opposite of everything. And it doesn't matter what, okay, you might have been, had bad policy, you responded badly, your economic policy is, you know, is uh, ending up in eviscerating the industrial base of the country and sure, you could find ways to define all these things, especially if they're done in relationship to uh, foreign threats or enemies or nemeses seeking to wage war on the United States uh, in a physical fashion, that those kinds of things could be seen as treason. But the actual ultimate act that would negate the constitutional contract writ large by we the people in relationship to our contractees, i.e., the government at large, and then our elected representatives, but then the entirety, not only the executive, the, represent, the, the, the legislative, but also the judicial branch, it would be in relationship to acts of treason then that went unpunished or unaccounted uh, for. And so that ultimate act of war against the United States itself or giving aid and comfort to those that do, this is why I attempted to bait John Yu into uh, affirming that the ex he believed that the executive branch, under a kind of neocon Straussian kind of uh, executive will to power or unitary executive kind of theory or a noble lie even kind of theory, that the executive branch had the right to wage or stage war, I said, uh, against other parts of the government or against the people for reasons that they thought were uh, valid. <laughs> He wouldn't take the take the take the bait, but it ended up him admitting that he believed that the anthrax attack was a false flag. He didn't use those words, but I then basically did and said that, oh, that so this is actually, yeah, someone was trying to make it seem like the anthrax attacks that were, uh, you know, 
perpetrated against, including highest level U.S. senators and shut down the U.S. Congress, I think, for the first time since the British had burned it during the War of 1812 in 1814. Someone wanted to make it seem with their scrawling handwriting that it was uh, some kind of uh, Islamo-Jihadist, Al-Qaeda type, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. And... John Yu, in the wake of not taking the bait around me trying to like really prove the point about what these people potentially actually believe, they actually believe at some level, and this is what I imagine the Bill Crystal actually could potentially believe, and this is what needed needs to be uh, called out if you're going to debate Bill Crystal, is that your milieu believes that you can actually stage war against the United States for your geopolitical cause. Those, those are the, the truths that are actionable towards justice in a constitutional system that would ultimately potentially result in the actual kind of uh, non-aggressive, limited form of uh, Republican government that, liber that libertarian types and minarchist types actually profess uh, to desire as, as at the very least as their stepping stone to their, to their more anarchistic uh, notion of, of freedom. And so sure, there's all these sort of bigger things that we, uh, and that we should probably debate about in terms of political philosophy. Um, my concept of the hierarchy of sovereignty and that they have to just re reinsert the private as separate from the corporate and the corporate is below the public and the public is below the private and then the private cannot exist unless the commons are protected. It doesn't mean that you protect the commons with the public, but they have, we have to figure out a way to protect the uh, commons or else you can't have the private uh, individuals. And once you can fuse the private, which is natural rights, with the corporate, which is legal rights, and one sits on top of the public sector and the government and commands the nature of it, contracts it, and then the other, that's, that's the private, that's the actual, we the people, the person, the individuals, then the other, the corporate, sits underneath. And it is delegated a certain limited amount of uh, contractual rights in relationship to our contractee, the government, then delegating a certain limited number of uh, rights to the corporation. And so certain basic understandings could help, uh, you know, I think facilitate a conversation about these sort of bigger political philosophy issues that I think the libertarians have. But what we can get to right now, and we need to get to right now, especially with this ongoing 311 operation that the libertarians actually are potentially some of the better potential political actors in all of this because they are they understand they're not sort of MAGA chud heads where they pretend most of them they don't pretend like there's not actually you know a, a threat but they understand that that both freedom and security ultimately have to be uh, protected uh, in in some way and so I guess I'm just this is my basic point here is let's get to the the heart of the argument that I think we should be able to agree upon is that if there are war crimes that are based on originating treason, 
then you can't just call out the war crimes. You have to call out the originating treason, I would say, first and foremost. And then that will then potentially then resolve the situation of the uh, international war crimes and the uh, aggression principle deployed abroad. So let's let's grapple with the aggression aggression principle deployed in the so-called homeland first. On the note of uh, three eleven of COVID of the situation with that, I think that um, there's uh, there's another conversation to be had in terms of like the overlapping of narratives that were used in terms of uh, shaping the narrative around COVID and perhaps some overlapping with some very bad interests once again with elements of the of the libertarian of libertarian politics, libertarian activism. And that's another conversation. But on that note, I will add that I think this is one of the flaws of not trying to get to the bottom of deep networks and uh, of trying to, is that there was, while I don't think that, uh, I don't think that, I don't think that Scott Horton is a fan of uh, Ron DeSantis per se. There was a, perhaps not, Will not exciting. I wouldn't quite call it an endorsement, but like there's this idea that oh, DeSantis was like a hero for liberty in terms of his handling of COVID, and therefore like almost holding out. Like there's an element there of like you know ultimately if we can't get behind this guy totally, then we can you know perhaps he's better than some of the opposition or whatever because he's doing the right thing regarding COVID. And of course, we would identify DeSantis as a major political operative in terms of this bigger um, operation we've been discussing, his name being put out there on this national level as perhaps like the follow-up to Trump, if like if not Trump himself, and a lot of consequences coming from him as the governor of Florida and things that are being promoted and pushed there. And Florida's role perhaps in the um, the further dissolution of the union, which has very much been pursued by this, um, by this international and domestic uh, operation that you know we've been. Identified. So I wanted to throw that in there as an example of like the the strict ideology to things like their concept of liberty, which I think is right a lot. I think do think that like liberty versus security. There's I would more or less side with. Um, aspects of more pure libertarian thinking on that but then like you know this idea this poison pill of like oh DeSantis could be viable because he's a hero for liberty and how he's handling COVID I wanted to throw that in there and also Jeremy I want to mention two other notes about the uh, debate maybe this will be starting to uh, wrap up as I do this but two other notes from uh, from both the Horton Crystal debate and the follow-up interview with Dave Smith was um, was one um, Bill Crystal being uh portrayed as and there's an element of this that is correct in terms of like the media operation of bill crystal's weekly standard um his influence through fox news through talk radio or his network and in terms of even elements of the administration itself were key to pushing the propaganda talking points post-september 11th that led to these illegal um criminal wars of aggression um but you know crystal was almost described as like the reason why um drops name drop some names uh Douglas Fyth, uh, Richard Pearl, um, David Wormser, um, Horton name dropped Abram Shulsky, a key player behind the office of special plants. As you know, this is the reason, like they that Crystal was the reason. You know, Crystal was a con primary source of propaganda, but Bill Crystal wasn't 
in Dick Cheney's office uh, actively pursuing. It wasn't, you know, Bill Crystal wasn't responsible for that. And uh, it's interesting just throwing in there Abram Shulsky, these types of people, not even trying to like, once again, try to get to the, identify where there could potentially be some, not entirely, not entire overlap in terms of their philosophies and in terms of their aims and motivations and what they're pushing for, but also like somehow Crystal is like, is like a primary reason for their success. I was wondering, you know, I would ask Scott Horton, well, is Bill Crystal responsible for Michael Maloof's uh, success in pushing a post-September 11th uh, pro-war propaganda? I mean, since I don't know if Horton and Maloof are, um, are at all, um, you know, if they even know each other, if there's any type of association there. But of course, we've identified uh, Michael Maloof as a player in terms of uh, Russian state propaganda operating in the U.S. via RT and Sputnik and his role with the with Fife and Worms or even being identified as the primary source for the infamous uh, Judith Miller going back to Franklin Four in uh, New York Magazine in 2004. Profile of Judith Miller identified Michael Maloof as her basically her primary source. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, I would wonder what he would say about Maloof there. But this idea that Crystal's the reason why you know, Abram Shulsky had so much success post September 11th. I mean, it's there's an element of truth that from a, from a media propaganda perspective, but I think ultimately that falls flat. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the um, going back to and I mentioned this before the uh, the the geopolitical element and i think the and this it goes back to september 11th but it's also very obviously vital with 11 9 i'm reiterating something i said earlier here but i just wanted to go back to it again there was a conversation and one of the things that uh horton mentioned in his uh debate with crystal was the hostility towards russia and you know the neocons uh, are so hostile to russia and then in the interview conversation with dave smith like a dismissal of like Russia, like, oh, Russia's just a regional power. There's no influence compared to anything the Americans are doing in the world. And from a pure military boots on the ground perspective, I think that that's probably not entirely incorrect. But in terms of foreign influence through, it's, you know, that's, I think, very nearsighted to say the least. And it sounds similar to like the people who's like the Chomsky like line on Israel from a different perspective that it's just. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so I want to finish my point here going twofold on that argument. Number one is that, as I mentioned before, I think it's very, um, that's very counterproductive that you're not allowed. Basically, good libertarians or good anti-war people, good anti-intervention people are not allowed to cite actual threats, actual hostile foreign and domestic through a lot through the same bigger network that they are so rightfully opposed to, I think, in so many ways. Um, you're not allowed to actual threats because that's um that's hawkishness. That you're a war hawk because we've gone back and identified like the Max Blumenthal's and the Aaron Mates and the way they put it is well, if you're going to criticize any type of Russian operations, either domestic influence or geopolitically, well, you're just a you're just want to start a new cold war with the Russians or whatever. But and I think that Horton is very similar in that regard of like not being able to see an actual threat or identify an actual threat because that's bad and you know you're just you know if you're not either apologizing for america or you're trying to um inflame hostilities which of course you know you can talk about these actual threats without doing that but that's when and then the other thing i think is that by and we i've talked about this before i think in terms of like abby abby martin i think we've had a discussion about this in the past in terms of a 
And she's not the only one by far, but um, when you basically, I don't, I want to be careful on how I frame this because I don't want to necessarily say it's apologism, but when you defend actual, um, actual regimes who are actually doing things that are negative, um, I think you lose. Uh, I think there's an element of you that loses some. It's some. It's not. It's at a different level than like not being honest about like the inherent nature of like the actual basic fundamental um, lies about something like September 11th. But there's an element of this to where I think that like the Hortons arguing that simply Russia is an innocent victim of neocon aggression or insert um, country here, China, for example. I think there's an element of that also to where that can be used. I mean, you know, Bill Crystal wasn't in a position to do it because I think he was so neutered by Horton. I mean, it's not the best example here, but that can be used also to discredit your perspective, your stance. If you are running, it's kind of, you know, it's like you know, Horton won't run apologetics for Israel and he would be very critical of people who do. But in a similar strain, when you just, you know, Russia is doing, they're doing no wrong in the world, and it's just simply neocon aggressions. The reason why people are critical of anything that goes on in terms of the Russian sphere, whether it's geopolitically or whether it's even here in the U.S. with active measures, I think that that opens you up for attack as well. As the, as the other side can rightfully point to you being knowingly or unknowingly covering for and defending actual, you know, other regimes, other places where that are doing negative and are and so i just wanted to bring that in there i think that number i think it both um it runs i think a veneer of protection for an actual hostile elements for actual hostile elements while at the same time also opening you up to attack as that can be used to discredit you as well as people can point to actual real things that have been done by some of these um entities that are defended ultimately by this anti-war element that ultimately comes down to um, anything that's just not simply America bad ultimately is just trying to warmonger. So I just want to bring that in there. But that would be my, be my final point for this whole uh, conversation for, for, for this go around at least. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. And I think it's a good point for us to end on in that it is the, this is the, the other key thread of this, I think that you just put in here that it, in a similar way that if you are principled anti you know, uh, non-aggression, anti-war uh, at the international level, and you fail to call out the war on the United the people at the very least of the United States uh, in terms of the originating incident and who, and, and who did it and why, and whether it's, you know, the same people that quote unquote responded to it are the ones that also at least the very least know the people who did it. Let's say um, that this other piece is that if you then uh, don't deal with these networks, these, these uh, transnational networks and international networks uh, and, and uh, bad actor elements in terms of, you know, Maybe not. We're not talking about bad moral actor in that way, although obviously some of it is. But just saying, you know, that that a nemesis that there are foreign nemesis, and then especially when you then see something like a eleven nine, and you in a way that goes way beyond something like nine eleven, you see this very intense Netanyahu Putin, uh, you know, Israeli Russian axis. 
teamed up directly with these domestic elements who are the ones in, you know, in a sort of parallel fashion to 9-11 that waging this 11-9 war operation, uh, in this case, with these foreign elements. Then if you don't, if you don't deal with the, you know, the, the truth of the matter, first of all, the, you know, putting aside the whole question of it, if you are the way that you respond to what Russia, Russian active measures are doing in relationship to uh, Israel in terms of 11-9 and, and Trump, in terms of what you were saying about like someone like Max Blumenthal, that like if you even sort of criticize Russian action, then you are misplacing your attention. Abby sort of Martin got into that a lot in terms of Russia and China uh, in in many ways. But beyond that, but if you're if if you, the ear is being told to actively deny, or you're being uh, misled from actually looking at the forensics of, of the operation itself, whether 9-11 or 11-9, and whatever these foreign elements are doing, you're then going to then also miss the domestic element in operation to this, which all these people did in terms of the seriousness of, of uh, 11-9 and, and Trump MAGA at a more macro level. And then, of course, this then leads directly back into your other uh, point that you made here about some of the serious questions that need to be dealt with in terms of these specific political networks in relationship to those who actually did 11-9, especially something like the CMP networks. That is not very far from the, the aspects of libertarianism the background of uh, Mises, you know, the whole, this whole sort of scenario that ends up being the Mises caucus inside of the Libertarian Party, Ron Paul, CNP is right there. So in 11-9, whereas the, this, this, these people, let's say someone like Scott Horton, are obviously a direct nemesis of the, uh, at the very least, the 9-11 operator's result. In this case, around 11-9, they seem to be much closer to the perpetrators. And in, in many ways, at the very least, they're intensely facilitating the cover-up by not acknowledging that anything to, happened. And going back to like Dawson, what I point earlier about Dawson and Bernard Carrick and even Rudy and like the lining up in terms of talking points when it comes to the organized left and all this, um, you find yourself by doing that also, um, in a lot of ways, um, probably unknowingly, I'd like to think more than knowingly, but nonetheless, ideologically um, aligning or sounding like um, the people that, you, that you're trying to expose for, at the very least, profiting off of and benefiting from the previous event. So it's, it's and it, it, I think that, that that brings you back to, in a lot of ways, you end up supporting what you say you despise the most. So, yeah, so I think this is an important place that we leave this and then we begin to pick back up when we delve back in here, specifically on some of these forensics uh, around the, the counterintelligence issues here, both in terms of how, how powerful the cover-up is, both in terms of 9-11, but also even more intensely in terms of 11-9. 
directly by this these uh, circles of uh, political actors. Um, but then also this bigger issue of the macro questions around the evolution, the, the historical development of libertarianism as a political movement in an American context and how at its root, it's obviously, you know, it's, I'm not trying to be xenophobic uh, and I'm not a xenophobe. I'm open to the ideas of others, of people who don't come from the United States. But I'll just point out again, the over and over again, whether it's the left or the right, there's always some kind of appeal to uh, European men from the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. We also have American thought, actually. Some of it is actually indigenous, too. It would include even indigenous people's uh, approaches to governance and, uh, and circles of governance and the importance of grandmothers in, in governance. But it also includes even our, our own uh, uh, men of European origin in an American context of people like Henry George uh, in terms of other approaches to economics and land-based uh, economics, um, geoeconomics that appear to actually function much more effectively and much more in integrity with the possibility of the, uh, of the American system, let's call it. Um, and, and so that is something that needs to be dealt with is that we're talking about, you know, the Austrian school and that is now here in the United States under the guise of the libertarian movement in the Mises caucus, right? This is an Austrian, this is a, as a, it goes back to Austria, right? Uh, and so there's a question there. There's just something beyond just the sort of the uh, Rockefeller, uh, foundation sponsorship of the originating, uh, you know, immigration of Van Mises to the United States, there's this other bigger question in terms of, yeah, what about our indigenous American political thinking here? Do we really need to always lean on whether it's the right and the Austrian school or the left and the Marxists and the Keynes, you know? Uh, no, we don't. Can we learn from it? Sure. Should we read? Sure. Should we discuss? Yes. Debate? Yeah. But let's actually think from first principles in an indigenous American way that there's possibilities here of thinking beyond the European box in that way. Okay. And that there, there, this is something, something different here. This is, this is something different and it's not just European. There's something else also going on here. And, uh, and so that aspect, I think we begin to need to look at both in terms of just pure intellectual history and uh, questions of, uh, you know, best uh, political philosophical outcomes, but also in terms of counterintelligence questions about uh, the kinds of things that we're beginning to look at. And so that would even run up into last thing is that like, you know, when you brought up this real problematic issue, the way that they talk about someone like DeSantis as some kind of, you know, potential proponent of liberty. I believe it's more plausible that Ron DeSantis is something like some kind of like deep sleeper, intergenerational uh, Russian illegal kind of asset than it is that he's some kind of proponent of, of valuable liberty in the midst 
of a, a biowarfare attack uh, that has still not been resolved and there's still no uh, resolving uh, proposals from this uh, libertarian uh, set. So you need to have liberty and security. If you want to ensure liberty, you also need to take security seriously. And, and the best libertarians totally understand that they have, they believe that security can be secured, not by the mono, the monocultural or the, um, the monopoly on force that they uh, believe the state, you know, sort of, uh, sort of secures for itself over the long period of, of time. They have other ideas about how you might, uh, use liberty to, uh, to, uh, protect security. So, that's not the problem, but the problem then is how then does that actually uh, manifest? And saying that Ron DeSantis is some kind of governor for for liberty, even if it's just in terms of COVID, is not even. I don't think it doesn't even uh, track to the best of libertarian principles, which understands you got to have both liberty and security. That liberty actually leads to security is actually their argument. It's a very good argument, actually. Um, but, uh, they're not even making that argument. Uh, and, uh, and so, all right, there's a lot to discuss here, Greg, it could go on all night on some of these matters and, uh, but we will return, uh, to the, to these matters. And, uh, so, all right. It was, uh, very, uh, cool to talk to you about this. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, no, no doubt. Same to you. All right. Thank you everybody out there until next time. Antidote. We are out.